0: We're combining all the best old-school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with, with, with Coach Bo. Welcome coaches, welcome players. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass, the 80-20 Baseball Podcast. I'm Coach Bo. I'm fired up to be here for episode 57. In this episode, we're going to do something a little different today. I am going to share with you directly here an interview that I did with a great guy, Rob Tong, and Rob's a coach, and he's put together a podcast called The Youth Baseball Edge, The Youth Baseball Edge Podcast, and it is a phenomenal podcast. And what really stands out that I think Rob does a phenomenal job of doing is he's very inquisitive. His follow-up questions and just his first question to start it off, his initial questions are outstanding. He's very inquisitive and extremely intelligent, and he interviews people within the baseball community that have a lot of wisdom to share with all of you. So here on episode 57 of the 80/20 Baseball Masterclass, we're going to flip the script a little, and I'm going to get interviewed by Rob. And in today's episode, he's going to ask me about my best. Gr- ground ball drill, my best defensive ground ball drill. And I'm going to break it all down exactly how to run it. We are also going to discuss the effects of yelling at players. And I know this is a hot topic conversation, yelling at players. And I'm going to share exactly my beliefs and the evidence I feel hold strong in terms of yelling, whether to use it or not use it or how much to use it. Then we're going to talk about the bear crawl. And more importantly, in this episode, I'm going to talk about the three points of leverage for a coach. If you don't have leverage, then the team is going to dictate what they want to do. The players are going to dictate what they want to do, when they want to do it, how much they want to hustle. To have control over the team, you have to have the respect and their buy-in, but you also have to have some leverage when it comes to consequences. And I'll talk about the three points of leverage that coaches have. And then we finish up this part of the interview, discussing team rules with their associated consequences. And lastly, I share with Rob the hitting approaches that Hitters of all levels should subscribe to. All right, here we go with Rob. Every
1: new season should start with a plan. Even if you coach a select or travel team with little turnover, you probably want to reevaluate the previous season and update your current plan. And by plan, I don't mean what specific drills you're going to be using in your practices this season. I mean more broad, overarching things. Things like what's your team culture going to look like this season? What's your philosophy on hitting? What areas should you emphasize in practices? Are you development-oriented or winning-oriented? etc. And while we won't cover all those areas, my guest today will cover some of those areas. How's that for a percentage of a plan? And Bo Ashabrainer has some great ideas for you to consider. So let's get into it, shall we? Here's part one of my interview with Bo Ashabrainer. My guest today played baseball for 18 years before coaching and consulting for 15 more years. He was drafted in 1999 by the Tampa Bay Rays and again in 2003 by the Cleveland Indians. He's a National Pitching Association certified coach and played for two National Coach of the Year winners. Bo Ashabrainer, welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your playing days when you were young.
0: Well, it started off a long time ago, and I started baseball when I was probably three or four playing like a lot of young boys. It was my first love. I played a half dozen sports growing up, but baseball was my first love. And when I first started playing youth ball, I was fortunate because my dad coached the team, and he actually coached seven of my eight youth baseball teams, which was really a cool experience. And we won often, but most importantly, we won our first share of games, but my dad always kept the game fun. He never made it about him. He never made it super over, you know. He always kept the big picture in mind, and he always made sure each player had a fun time. In fact, I run into guys that I played with years and years ago, and they always remind me how much fun they had playing with my dad. So I was lucky to play seven of my eight youth baseball years with my dad. Now, he did take me, my dad did take me to get some professional coaching for pitching from John Verhoeven and Don Ossie, two ex-major leaguers, and that was interesting kind of to see that training side of it outside of the team stuff, and this was kind of years ago when not so many people did the lessons and my parents couldn't quite, I don't know how they scrounge the money together, but they got me there once a week and um, those guys really helped me out with my pitching. And uh, so I was fortunate to have my dad and be able to have that support and things like that.
1: So when you were drafted in 99 by the Rays, this was right out of college. So what was the feeling like to turn down an offer to play in the major leagues?
0: Well, you know what, actually it was right out of high school and I turned it down because I was very fortunate to have a, a really good scholarship to Long Beach State. And at the time, Long Beach State, and for my first two years in Long Beach State, the head coach was Dave Snow, Hall of Fame coach. And at the time, they were the number two team in the country. Like, I think the day I committed, they were the number two team in the country. And so I knew that I had a great opportunity there. And I had a, a scholarship that was definitely going to be worth, you know, a lot pay for most of my, most of everything there. And maybe I wasn't at 18 or maybe I was, but I thought, hey, this is a great opportunity for a first class program with a great coach. And I did that. And it was pretty much a no brainer.
1: So you got drafted again in 2003 by the Indians so what was it like to be in the minor
0: leagues well, it was definitely a mixed bag, and there were a lot of highlights. The friendships, meeting teammates from all over the country, that was awesome. Not just all over the country, but I had some of my best, closest friendships to this day are from some of my teammates from Latin America, the Dominican Republic specifically, and Venezuela. Now, there is a downside. You're hearing a lot of this stuff going on. You're reading people, reading a lot of stuff about the minor leagues. It's it's kind of a, a hot topic right now with the minor league pay and the living arrangements and things like that, and that is absolutely true. Every single part of that is true, and it was a little Unfortunate to see the paycheck at the end of the month, mm. and um, that was a little tough. The living arrangements were a little tough. The hotels were were pretty shoddy, and I kind of I didn't grow up with a lot of money, so it wasn't like something that I was like, wow, this is like, oh, this isn't the Four Seasons. So I didn't have great expectations, but I was still a little disappointed. The pregame food was peanut butter and jelly, and I'm not talking like this is store brand peanut butter and jelly and, and the worst cheapest white bread you could find, and that was pregame meal for for professional athlete at the highest level, well, next to the highest level, the minor leagues. But some of these guys year or two from being in the major leagues. So that was a little disappointing. The coaching, I was a little disappointed. I don't feel like I I got taught very much. And I told one of my teammates from Long Beach after I finished playing pro ball, I probably learned more about pitching in one bullpen at Long Beach State than I did in three years in the minor leagues. Now, I know that's changed a lot. And I know they're getting a lot more into the minor leagues now. And they're really changing that, which is awesome to see. So you had teammates
1: who were Dominican players and Venezuelan players. Why do you think that Latin American players, Players are able to get to the bigs with much less and fewer resources than kids in the United States who might be paying thousands of dollars for travel teams and private instruction?
0: A couple of things that really stood out to me over the years, and you can see this on like YouTube. You'll see videos of hitters in the Dominican, and they'll just be out there hitting with, you know, they'll be hitting sunflower seeds or little rocks. And it's kind of a well-known little kind of minute drill that they would do, you know, with kind of a skinny stick and some sunflower seeds or little rocks. And, you know, there's something to be said for that, because when I work with hitters, I actually love to give them a lot of reps with smaller baseballs or the small little golf ball wiffle balls. And, um, you know, I think it, it's not a bad idea to even give them a skinnier size kind of bat. Now it's a little harder to come by, especially with the, the weight and distribution and things to make it similar to what they're going to swing in a game. But they, I think they were definitely on to something down there with that. And I think another thing that really stands out is the urgency for them. You know, I think their fallback plan is, is definitely, um, they don't have the luxury that a lot of the people here in the States have when it comes to a fallback plan. I had a college degree in the bag before when I, while I was still in the minor leagues, I had a college degree in the bag. And my buddies from Venezuela, they didn't they had maybe seventh grade, eighth grade. I and mean, these were smart guys. They were smart guys. But their education wouldn't necessarily play out like if they came to the United States and they said, hey, this is my education. It's not going to necessarily land them a quick job. And so I think that their fallback plan was a lot more limited. And that was unfortunate. But it also drove them. I think it drives the Latin players to really get after it because they really, really want to take care of their families. And they really it's not just about them. It's about their families. And it's a big deal because they're going to help a lot of people that are poor and, and, and needed. So I guess the motivation is definitely a big thing. And I think their training resources actually make it tougher. You know, you always hear about the shortstops and in middle infielders are great with their hands because they were fielding ground balls on fields with a bunch of rocks and things like that. So bad hops to them is just that status quo. You know, that's at another day at the field. That's just every other ground ball where some of these fields that the youth in America play on, not all, but some of them are, are so plush and nice that a bad hop is something they're not used to, to see very often.
1: So today, Bo, you're going to help us improve our coaching philosophies. But before we do that, I'd like our audience to get to know Bo Ashbrainer a little better with some lightning style about me questions, followed by some word association questions.
0: You ready? I am. (laughs) Favorite team? LA. I love the Dodgers and I'm a big Angels fan. So they're in two different leagues. When they play each other, I definitely go blue. Favorite player? Justin Turner. He's a great blend of old school and new school. Favorite movie? Major League. Now, it might not be good for the youth players, but I think Major League is definitely my favorite base baseball movie and uh, outside of baseball i really liked and i know they're not a movie but it's a set uh, it's a series the band of brothers and uh, the pacific morning person or night person morning i typically get up five days a week before five favorite book the power of now i think that's the number one book i've read 200 and i just counted the other days 240 non-fiction books in the last five years and cover to cover and that was definitely hands down the number one life changer of of them all favorite quote discipline equals freedom by jocko willink favorite drill I'm a big fan of any drill that replicates game action, is challenging, it's competitive, it's fun, it's efficient. I'm a big efficiency fan because I think baseball is very inefficient with practice for the most part. And I love drills that are big needle movers. You know, if I see a team out there spending 30 minutes on rundowns and then 30 minutes on hitting, the rundown may cost you one run a year, maybe, or a couple runs. But having a, an offense that's not producing is going to cost you a lot of games. So I think big needle mover drills that really move the needle, ground ball, drills, hitting drills, pitching drills, base running drills, those big needle movers, and not those isolated plays where you're practicing half your practice is first and third defense and stuff like that.
1: So what is one of your favorite needle mover drills?
0: I got a ground ball drill that I I really, really like to use. You got your four and you got four infielders and then you got some player, you know, say you have two or three third basemen. Let's say say you have a, a third baseman, shortstop, second baseman, first baseman, and you may have a few behind that. No catcher, no pitcher. You got preferably three coaches hitting fungos and you have a bucket actually multiple buckets full. I'm a big fan of bringing a lot of buckets to practice. I recommend every youth coach have four full buckets of baseballs. Well, actually, I recommend you have eight buckets. And I recommend you have a bucket at every single position. So third base has a bucket, second base, shortstop, first base all have buckets. And you have the coach on the there's the coaches are all lined up at home place. So you have the three coaches. You have one standing near home plate, one off to the third base side, one off to the first base side far enough apart. So they just don't hit each other. You got somebody feeding them. You can have another coach or a dad or some feeding them, or maybe a player, like in high school, there's players that are just called pitchers only. Maybe they're feeding. So the coaches don't have to bend over to the bucket and reach in the bucket. They're getting the ball fed to them. Again, efficiency. Now you're hitting ground balls and the coach on the third base side is hitting ground balls to second base. The coach that's lined up at home plate is hitting ground balls to shortstop. And then the the coach on the first base side is hitting them to third base. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I like to do with the drill is I like always have one position I call a live throw position. So I start with third base. They're the live throwers. And when they get a ground ball, they're live and they throw the ball across to first base. You're going to hit five minutes to 10 minutes, depending on how much time you have for practice to third base. And then you're going to go to shortstop. Then you're going to move over. And when I say move over, that's going to now be the live throwers. Then you move to second base. They're the live thrower. You only have one position throwing live at a time. This eliminates any confusion. Now they're throwing live to first base. Now, so now I don't hit that many ground balls to first base. And I don't recommend coaches hit a lot of ground balls to first base, because if you look at the numbers, the first baseman's will catch. They'll catch a ball coming from shortstop third or second five to six times for every ground ball they get and anybody who's coached long enough knows that first basemans can always get better working around the bag with their stretch with going up for a ball with going left with going right and with the digs you know scooping the ball so i prefer i believe that first basemans are going to save a lot more runs and help win a lot more games by being really good around the bag at catching and stretching and digging than they are by getting that one or two ground balls that comes their way or maybe that one a game that comes their way i'm not saying they shouldn't get ground balls but i like to do it at the very end and i like to hit them rapid fire at them give them five or ten so so I like to do that drill. It's a live drill. And you can kind of transition to double plays and things like that. You can have your shortstop even back in the hole, throw some, they field in, throw to third base on that guy who might be advancing. And maybe that's the only play. So there's different variations, but I, that's one of my favorite ground ball drills. The, the thing is you have the buckets there. So as soon as the buckets fill, boom, those positions run them straight in. They don't dump the bucket into the other bucket. They just grab the empty bucket, run back and the drill starts. And you time this, the transition doesn't need to be more than 45 seconds and you're back in business. You got, and you don't have to stop much. You have the four full buckets. Another thing what I like to do with this drill is when I'm hitting the ground balls and or the coaches are hitting them, I tell them to start off with a, a ground ball that's about 50 to 75% in speed compared to the normal game. Let the player kind of build his footwork and kind of get his feel and get a little confidence with it and then pick it up. Then I like to go, you know, I like to spread it. I like to do a 20-40-40 ratio. 20% of the ground balls, so two out of 10 are going to be a little bit slower than game speed so they get a feel for it. Then I'm going to go about 40% of them game speed, game speed for that level. And then the the last 40 are going to be 40% are going to be more difficult than, than the game speed at that particular level. Mm-hmm. Um, another way to increase that without getting you know, kids hurt, if you really want to challenge them, you can use the Incredibles. And I also like to line them up sometimes for fun with a tennis rack and hit tennis balls, head them up against the fence and work reaction time. That's a different drill, but that's probably my favorite ground ball drill. You move around, you do different things. Sometimes I'll finish with a, you know, rolling, just drag bunts to all the guys in a line, have all the guys line up and they're just making throws on the run, to first base efficiency game, like, and that's a good one. Fantastic. I appreciate that. All right. Last book you read. About Face by Colonel David Hackworth. It's about 840 pages of leadership lessons. Favorite coaching tool or resource? Well, I'm a big podcast fan. I've been listening to podcasts for years. I love this podcast you've been doing here, Rob, uh, the Youth Baseball Edge. I've been listening to this one for years. And I know we just kind of met recently, but I've gotten a lot of good information from all the guests you've, you've had over the years. So I'm a big podcast fan because it allows you to learn while doing other things, things that maybe aren't, you, you know, there are a lot of things you can do while listening to a podcast and Learning a lot of great stuff, so that's been big. The ABCA conventions, I really, really like going and listening to those. And if I haven't gone to them, I usually watch all the videos online. That's huge because it's just a lot of great wisdom. I would like to see the ABCA con- you know, start bringing in uh a- And if any ABCA board members are listening to this, I'd love you to start bringing in people outside of baseball more often. Guys like Jocko Willink, you know, Richard Kosh, Simon Sinek, the guy who wrote the Start with the Why. You know, bring some of those outside of um, people that talk leadership and strategy. That's outside of baseball, and bring those in. That would be. Be great to see. So that's kind of my other last resource. It's just non-fiction, non-baseball books. I like learning a lot from the great minds outside of baseball and see if there are some things that can come into baseball and work. And I've definitely gotten a lot of those over the years.
1: Something you used to believe that you now know is wrong.
0: This one right here, this one's fairly granular. It's a pitcher. It's talking. This is for pitchers and pitching coaches. And it's a very important part of the pitching delivery. I used to teach when a pitcher would lift his leg up and he would be at like the, the peak leg lift height. I used to teach them to, to sink a little as they went forward right away. So their first move was kind of a sink and as they progressed down the slope, not the drop and drive, but kind of a, their initial move was a sink on that back leg to kind of control their dynamic balance moving forward. What I've learned over the years though that is that's probably not the optimal way. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the wrong way to teach it because I see all the great pitchers down over the years and some great pitching coaches. And I, and I firmly believe that what I taught then was it's again, this is granular, but a big difference maker with pitches, with pitchers is when the pitcher gets to his peak leg height or peak leg lift height is to have a little bit of a hip glute lead drift towards home plate. Just a couple like a millisecond, three to six inches of getting that hip, that front hip and that front glute out in front leading towards the plate before they start to sink. Now this happens really quick. It's you know the pitching delivery is very fast. So it happens very quick. But that little movement forward really sets you up for some good balance and keeping your center of gravity in a good position as you go down. And then from there yeah you're gradually going to sink on that back leg, you know, as you go down the slope. So I think that pays massive dividends on
1: on control and command and arm health. Something you believe others think is crazy.
0: I think yelling at practice and yelling at at kids is something that should be avoided at all times. Now, a firm tone, like a firm tone from time to time, kind of an attention getter, not yelling, but a firm tone is definitely useful. But a loud upset yelling, I believe, is 100% useless outside of a safety issue. And in most cases, I think it's counterproductive and actually sets coaches back as they move forward with their team. All right. And now, Word Association. The first thing that
1: comes to mind with the following words or phrases hitting hit it hard, baseball technology. I think the kids
0: love it. The mental game overcomplicated, travel ball. Some great travel ball programs out there, and some some travel ball programs probably should be avoided. Drill difficulty 20, 40, 40. 20% a little easier in the game, 40% your typical game difficulty, and 40% tougher than the game. Breathing oh, that's huge, relaxes the muscles. Visualization big fan of it, especially right before a game. J bands, big fan of J bands. In fact, I think J bands actually have more uses than even uh, Alan, uh, than, than Alan Yeager wants to or even has out there. I think he, he's got to have some great uses. I think players use them in a lot of great ways. But I think there's actually a few more uses to them on top of the the many ways that they're used now. Rec league baseball, fun, and the bear crawl. Oh, that's a great extrinsic motivator. Okay, so thank you for
1: that. Let me follow up on that bear crawl a little bit. So why do you think it is such a great motivator?
0: Well, as a coach, you got to have some kind of leverage. The three that leverage the kind of the three points of leverage I look at for a coach is you have your you're on the team or you're not on the team, and that's kind of a last resort, like kicking a player off the team. You don't want to do that if you don't really have to. That's gotta be your last resort. But that's leverage, right? Your next kind of I guess severity of leverage is would be playing time. So if a player doesn't follow through or doesn't follow the rules, then playing time is taken away. But there's stuff that's just not to that level where the playing time should be taken away, or it's during practice and it's a little bit of a gray area. Do I want to bench a player? at the next game for that there this so the bear crawl i found is a great extrinsic motivator for using during practice because one players hate it but it's safe now why the bear crawl because years ago when i was taking an undergraduate class at long beach state i had a professor dr hill and dr hill hit us right away one of the first classes he was teaching kinesiology which is like study of movement kind of pe stuff and he said never punish a student never punish an athlete with exercise and i never thought about it like that because as i was growing up if you were or late to summer, you didn't do something right. It was this, it was sit on you know, wall school, squ- uh, you know, you sit on the wall for 20 minutes during batting during basketball practice or baseball, you'd run laps or whatnot. There was always punishment by physical activity. And his thing was, he said, we don't want to send the message that exercise is a consequence. We want to send the message that exercise is something that's beneficial, something that we want kids to look to do as part of a, a healthy quality training program and not give that kind of that stigma to it that it's negative. And I thought that makes perfect sense. But it is nice when you're out there as a coach to get your team going and focused. Typically, I'll have them go 100 feet, 80 feet, 150 feet, and then jog back, depending on how old they are. And they do not like it. It just burns, and it gets them back on track. And also kind of forewarn them, like, this is, the you know, or as a punishment, maybe for the team, you know, not a punishment, but the uh, a reward, the team that wins or team that loses, bear crawls, kind of like that to motivate them. I like it. I think it's just something that really fits well with baseball, and I think it fits well with sports in general. So I
1: also agree that we should not punish with exercise. So when you use the bear crawl as kind of a disciplinary issue, like, do you think that that might send the message that bear crawl is kind of considered like an exercise so that it might be considered like punishment? Good
0: question. Yeah, I I think that that's where the bear crawl comes in because it's so different from any other really type of training in sports. You know, if you go and and study the strength and conditioning or fitness or or conditioning programs out on the field or even in the gym, you know, you're not going to see the bear crawl really being a staple of any of those so i think that it's so different from your typical exercise your typical workout routine it's distance itself enough in perception of actual training exercise that i still think that i think it's a, a very useful and because of that because it doesn't you know bleed into that this is a fitness routine why are we doing it for punishment and confusion punishments
1: and disciplinary issues these are all part of team culture and we all know how important team culture is in pro sports and college sports and in the last world series between the nationals and the astros the nationals are talking about how how fantastic their team culture was. What does good team culture in high school or youth baseball look like compared to
0: more uh, adult sports? Well, you know, I think it's going to look very similar. I think youth ball in high school is going to look almost identical. College, you get a little more. But what's going to change is how the coaches instill that culture and how they facilitate it and how they explain it and how they kind of bring it about. That's going to vary, right? That's going to vary amongst the age levels. For youth, they they need to be explained the why a little bit more they need to have some steps there needs to be some more prefacing on it and things like that
1: so what are the top team culture essentials to you
0: well it should look like respect is coming from everyone toward everyone including the opponents and umpires it should be a welcoming environment for everybody it should be an environment that players kids are looking forward to going to there should be a high volume of genuine specific praise being passed around from not just coaches but from players too but i think the players will follow the lead of the coaches. There should be a zero tolerance for disrespectful comments. This is a tough area and it takes time to get really good at distinguishing between a little healthy banter, especially with young like little boys or young men, because a little healthy banter is not bad. But there's a fine line between disrespectful comments that get under somebody's skin and you know a little healthy banter to kind of toughen them up and get some thick skin. Then a high level of hustle from everyone. I think a good team culture is fast-paced, it's action-oriented. Now somebody might listeners might be hearing that and going, what is action-oriented have? to do with the team culture and how they talk to each other well we all know about the idle minds and the idle hands that's not a good thing if you have kids out there that are bored and sitting around well they're gonna find some fun they're gonna make jokes they're gonna get this and there's a lot more of a light there's a lot higher likelihood that they're gonna get under each other's skin right so if you keep your practice moving and you keep it goal focused on baseball you're not and you keep your transitions and your breaks timed they're not gonna have time to sit there and get under each other's skin And anybody's coach you sports knows that if you go over there and give them a five ten minute water break that first one minute or two minute to be good. But after a while, they start acting, you know, they start playing around. So I think it's important to have a fast paced environment. So the 10 culture essentials that I have lined out, and I'll go through these real quick. The 10 team culture essentials, I think, are paramount. You got to choose players with high quality character. Don't fall coaches out there. Don't fall for the talent tease. Go watch the movie Draft Day by Kevin Costner. The entire movie is centered around high quality players. First and foremost, talent is definitely want to get talent, but never pick a talented player that has a low quality character because you're not going to change them in one season. Mm-hmm. You know, it may take some time. Next, set well-defined rules. But most importantly, hey, every coach has rules. Some don't install them very good or instill them very good or don't explain them very good. But most coaches have rules. The problem is the enforcement of those rules is not consistent. It's not what you preach. It's what you tolerate. Those are your rules. And I say this to coaches. I go, the rules you have are not the rules you outlined on that parent passed out letter what you told them about the meeting. Those aren't your rules. The rules you have are the rules that you enforce. Force. That's it. Bottom line. So you may say you got five rules, but you only follow through on one of them or none of them. you got no rules. You have no expectations. So it's what you enforce. I'm a big believer, though, in fair rules. I'm a big believer in actually tiered consequences. I don't think it's especially with youth baseball, dropping the hammer on a kid because he messed up once or twice. I don't agree with that. I think you should have as fewer rules as possible. I think you need to enforce them across the board, whether it's your best player or your worst. And I saw this question online the other day it was, I got this great player and he broke the rule once. how do i treat that because you know he's not a he's not a multiple <laughs> violator you know hasn't he hasn't broken this rule multiple times but i have another player who broke it he's always a problem should i and, and a lot of people are saying hey yeah you got to treat him different i said no 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 you can't treat them differently the rule is the rule now that's where the tiered consequence comes in so if their first time they break a rule or whatever it is low hustle or they're late to practice or they're missing some equipment at practice or the game maybe you have a warning and then you outline that you tell the parents hey johnny got a warning today for this he didn't hustle at practice. The Next time, it's going to be maybe he's going to be out for three innings of the next game. And then the third consequence may be a full game. But you got to have some consequence. You got to have leverage as a coach. If you don't have leverage and you don't enforce them, you got no rules. Now, moving forward, I think you got to have a fast paced training practice, like a fast paced practice training environment, like I touched on earlier. Number four, praise loud and often. Five, keep the critique and constructive criticism as low key as you can. Number six, don't feel the need to critique every single error or every mistake. Now, this has this plays in team culture by it, it frees players up to play a little looser to play a little like less tense and when they're tense they're not going to be the best teammates when you do a ground ball drill fly ball drill base running drill batting practice whatever never say anything on the first time they make a mistake that particular player all right now wait till they make a second mistake mm-hmm. let the players figure it out on their own so this kind of creates a, a an environment a team culture of letting them play a little bit next you got to swiftly and firmly squash disrespectful talk like I talked earlier you got to be firm on that that's when you get firm you hear disrespectful talk, it's got to be firm. It's tough when you're not sure if it's banter or not. If if in doubt, err on the side of just cutting it off and then moving forward. Then you got to, number eight, consistently and concisely explain the why behind everything you're doing. You really do as a coach, you got to explain the why, especially in today's game. And I know I've listened to some of your episodes in just recent that talk about these kids have information from all over. They're getting information from all over. So it's more important than ever to explain the why behind your drills, behind your strategies, behind your methods. Don't get long-winded with this, coaches. Be very concise. Use examples of major league players doing it. But give the why. Be concise and tell them how it's going to help them come game time. Number nine, show every player that you care about them as an individual, as a human being. This is key. Because like the famous phrase goes, like, they don't care how much you know until they know you care. And how does this play out? Well, some of the things like you can use are asking them about themselves as a non-baseball related matter. Like, don't ask them about their swing and did they go to the batting cages this week? Ask them what else is going on at school or, you know, maybe they like to go skateboard or, surf. I had a player that was, he's still in college now. I coached a guy, a uh, really great kid, Jake, and he was a surfer. I've never the day in my life, but you know what? When Jake came to practice, I'd sometimes ask him if he's been out and hit those waves up recently. He'd smile real big. You know, he liked going. I said, how the way, you know, he, I would ask him if he's been recently. He goes, Oh, I went, you know, on Sunday, Hey, how are the waves and what kind of board you got? I don't know anything about surfing. I mean, I love watching surfing videos. I grew up watching like Kelly Slater and all those guys, but I don't really know I've never been on a board, but you know what? That showed that I cared, And that was a connection because as a, as a coach, every single player starts on the other side of the wall or on the other side of the river and you got to build a bridge or you got to break down that wall. And that's huge. You got to you know, add, make sure they know you care about them as a human being. And There's a thousand ways you can do this. And lastly, when you're coaching high school players or youth players, get the players, parents on board with your expectations. They got to be on board with this. So you got to maybe have a pyramid. You got to get them on board with the expectations, the rules and the consequences from the get go. I mean, you got to be very clear. I think the rules and expectations should be in writing. And again, it's not what's in writing at the end of the day. It's what you follow through on. So now, what steps can coaches take to create a great
1: team culture on their youth or high school team? Is there a process in which they can start to implement all these things?
0: Yes. From the get-go, you got to outline it. You got—I like putting in a writing, having a meeting. Here are the expectations. Here are the rules. Here are the consequences. I actually have all the consequences tiered out, lined out. Here you go, and I have the parent and the kids sign it. And then from there, you just at early on in the season, you you bring it. You talk about it a little bit more at the beginning of practice, and as the season goes on, you might. Talk Touch back on it, but it starts to kind of, you know, get a little more minimal in your dialogue about the rules and expectations. But it definitely should come back to something you should readdress it from time to time. And I think if you show them you care and you really care about them as kids, I think from there, you know, the rules start to be a lot easier to enforce. And also, you don't have to enforce and and follow through with as many rules because, you know, the players are already on board with everything and they trust you and and they go ahead with um, your expectations. But I definitely you got to start early before the first practice and then kind of keep bringing it up and even maybe Preface a drill, like if you know there's a drill that starts to show some low hustle in it before you've coached before, then maybe you, you address that before the drill starts and just be very clear, you know, in what you want.
1: We all appreciate the support for parent meetings because that is such an underrated uh, way of getting all of your expectations up front so that the parents and the team players are all on the same page with you. So now let's switch over to hitting. Hitting is obviously a challenging subject. So you have this philosophy regarding a hitting approach, which I think is kind of under discussed in many circles today. We talk a lot about mechanics and we talk a lot about timing, but we don't talk too much about having a good approach. So how would you describe having a good approach for hitters?
0: I go back to where Ted Williams famously said now Ted Williams is considered one of the top, if not the top hitter of all time and one of the most cerebral hitters of all time. And he said the most important part of hitting is getting a good pitch to hit. Now obviously he's speaking about a less than two strike approach, because you're not looking for a good pitch to hit with two strikes. Okay, (laughs) you're going to go down looking often, but with less than two strikes, get a good pitch to hit. Now, when I talk about hitting approach and hitting mindset, I'm talking about the mindset and what the hitter is looking for from the pitcher. You know, and again, this kind of goes in with picking up the ball early. Right. And then what they're looking for, what they're looking to swing at in the decision making process, because they have to make the decision whether they're swing or not. And that's where I'm talking about with their approach, their plan and what are they swinging at? Because you're not going to be able to decide when that pitch. is coming in four-tenths of a second. You have to have an, a very definitive plan if you want to be a successful hitter. One thing I think that gets under-discussed is hitters learn how to swing and, and make contact. Their hand-eye coordination develops from a young age when they're out there at the park or just in the front yard. They do a lot of swinging, but there's very little, if any, discussion, especially when they're out there in the front yard or at the park on their own, about what pitches to hit and what pitches to swing at and that sort of thing, the mindset, the, the hitting a plan. I believe that there are a lot of good hitting approaches and plans out there that are being thrown around that have been thrown around since the beginning of baseball like what are you looking for ahead in the count all right what to look for when you're behind in the count you know a two-striker pro- or this approach look for this pitch and not that pitch or don't swing at spin with less than two strikes like don't swing at a breaking ball or something like that with less than two strikes or look middle in early in this way at late or protect the strike zone with two strikes and so there's a lot of different things and, and all those have some merit but what i think happens is we have so many of these that are semi-good they're not wrong but it just opens up a whole bunch of paths that the kid can take, the player can take. And I think it's important that we can actually optimize it for all players with a little bit of variability in there. Definitely some variability. And we'll get into that right here with plan A. I call it plan A. You can call it whatever you want. Plan A is used when the count has zero or one strike. So less than two strikes. I would have all my players use plan A. And here are the kind of the points to this and how it works out. It's very simple. The batter will only swing at a pitch that can be hit hard. I wouldn't get into where where it goes as much as just driving it hard. I'm sorry, I would discuss a little bit about where it goes. I'm a big fan of that, getting a little launch angle on it. Yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of that. Now what this does to the hitter is it simplifies everything. It's not like I'm looking for this type of span or I'm looking for this type of pitch or I'm looking to this. Really it's about what is a pitch that can be hit hard and that varies from hitter to hitter. So there's some variability in here. So for Mike Trout, he knows what he can hit hard. He knows he crushes that low pitch and he crushes low changeups, low fastballs, low whatever. That guy crushes low pitches. So telling Mike Trout to take a change-up with less than two strikes would be crazy. He crushes those or a breaking ball or telling him to only look at belt-high fastballs, that's not good for him. Now, most hitters, the pitches that are up, they drive better, most. But the hot zone, this hitting zone, is gonna vary a little bit. So that's gonna be kind of worked around your hitter's strength. And And most hitters know, even young hitters, I've worked with hundreds of young hitters on this, and they figure it out pretty quick, like what pitch they can hit hard and what pitch they can't really put a good swing on. And it really makes it easy for them to decide quickly whether to swing or not. Like, they see it coming in, and they see the tunnel of it coming in. They go, This is probably a pitch I can rip or a pitch that I can't. And so there you go. That's the easy decision making process for them. Now they must swing 100%. If they get fooled, they get a change up. Better to swing through the change up than to roll over. Now, as a pitcher and years and years of pitching, as a pitching coach, I would love when hitters would roll over and they, they get fooled on a breaking ball early or a change up even better. That was awesome with less than two strikes because had they just missed the pitch, well, now we got to get him out of, we got to get another pitch by him. We got to get him out of, we still got to keep going because that's only. One strike or that's only two strikes. So it's better to swing through a pitch with less than two strikes than it is to put something in play. You don't just want to put the ball in play with less than two strikes. And if you get fooled, you just swing through it and you get another chance. It's better to have one strike up on the scoreboard or two strikes up on the scoreboard than one out or even worse. You just rolled into a double play because you got fooled on a OO change changeup, And now your team has two outs when you could have just swung through that. You got fooled. So what? Hey, cut your losses, swing hard, swing through it. So it really makes it simple. I got one swing swing. swing speed with less than two strikes. I'm looking for a pitch that's in an area, maybe the size of a beach ball that fits the hitter. Maybe that's a little away. Maybe it's a little up. Maybe it's a little down. Maybe it's dead red right down the middle. That's going to depend on the hitter. And then you got plan B. This is with two strikes. And in this approach, now you got to swing at things that are strikes because if you take a strike, right, you're out. So you got to swing at strikes. And we all know that the strike zone does not always end where the strike zone is outlined in the rule book. It's important that you do not just swing and, and swing at pitches in the strike zone, but also maybe a few. Inches in high school, definitely a few inches. College, you know, an inch or two. A ball off the plate, absolutely. Youth ball, it may be six inches off the plate. Once you get past about six inches in or out or down or up, pun intended, it might be hit and miss. Like, do you really want to swing at that pitch? Like the umpire, we've all seen it. Pitches in youth ball are a foot off the plate. They get called a strike. Now, the swing intensity should be as close to 100% as the pitch allows. Do not go up there with a defensive mindset. You do not want to be defensive and protecting the strike zone from the outset. You might transition as the pitch comes, you know, you're in this, I'm protecting this big hula hoop size zone now. So if it comes through that big hula hoop that you kind of maybe put a hula hoop, like 10 feet out in front, like an imaginary hula hoop, like five feet, 10 feet out in front of the zone in front of the plate. Now if the ball comes through there, you know, you got to swing at it, or you're going to sit on the bench because you just looked at strike three, but that pitch might be three inches off the outside corner, but the umpire has been calling it. Well, you might just have to put a 50% swing or 60% swing on that because it's better to put the ball in play or obviously to foul it off than it is to go down looking. So you're looking for the strike zone, plus a few inches, depending on the level of baseball you're at. Swing intensity, 100%, unless the pitch fools you and you got to slow down on it. Maybe they throw a great breaking ball and they say, all right, put it in play. And maybe there's a 10%, 20%, maybe at the youth level, a 30% chance that you might get the first base on that. Now, the last plan, plan take. I don't think hitters should go up there and just take a strike just to take a strike. But I do think taking a pitch is a good idea in a couple situations. One, when you're facing an atypical type of pitcher, a side armor, somebody who throws really hard. Maybe a guy has a really good cut fastball, something you don't see very often, or a pitcher that's been really wild. So there are definitely, in my opinion, times to go up there. And when I say plan-take, the hitter, before he gets in the box, he's in plan-take mode. Now, the coach may even talk to the hitter about this, hey, we're going plan-take here, or have a sign like plan-take, because the coach knows this is an atypical type of pitcher. It's not, he has extreme velocity, or he's an extremely slow pitcher. When you're facing an atypical pitcher, the reason you take a pitch, for youth coaches, this is important, it gives your hitter a chance to see a pitch coming in and kind of track it and get the timing before he adds the element of a swing in. And in the major leagues, you know, 38 percent of the time they throw a ball in the youth levels. It's more than that. So you very well may be one and know even by taking a pitch, it may not even hurt you. You actually may have more balls in your favor and the pitchers don't always throw strikes. So plan take is not a guarantee like I'm taking a strike. You're taking a pitch. So that's plan take. So you have plan A looking for a beach ball sized lesson two strike a pitch that can be driven swinging 100 percent, no less plan B two strike approach you're looking for a pitch that's in the strike zone any pitch that's in the strike zone plus a few inches maybe 6 inches at the youth level default swing intensity should be 100% and then adjust as need be and then plan take this is when you want to see a pitch before committing and adding a swing into it or if you see a wild pitcher you want that pitcher to prove you can throw a strike before you even help him out right back to real quick with plan B Rob I want to hit this sometimes with plan B that the why wouldn't go in a defensive mindset and this is taught a lot like uh, protect the zone with two so you got to protect. you got to protect. Mm-hmm. Pitchers do not throw perfect pitches. Pitchers make mistakes with two strikes. So if you go up there with a the defensive mindset, you're not going to be ready to do some real damage because on those pitches when they do make a mistake, and it happens, especially at the youth level and the high school level, they're going to hang a breaking ball. They're going to throw a fastball that was supposed to be elevated. They're going to throw it die high. And if you go up there with this foul ball, foul it off, put it in a play mentality, well, then you're just going to hit a hard ground ball to second instead of ripping it in the gap. So going up there defensively with two strikes is not the mindset. I feel like this is the optimal, the bare bone, like the broken down to the essentials and it's the most effective plan. See all those other plans I talked about, like what to look for ahead in the count, what to look for behind in the count, don't swing at this pitch, don't swing. They all have some merit. They're all what I would call good, but they're not optimal and so I think it's important that we don't get caught in good, we look for optimal. Kids can pick this up very fast. Oh, I gotta tell you a story to finish this up. I was at an angel game four years ago and I lived just down the street from the angels, so I lived just down the street from the greatest player on the planet, Mike Trout. And my best friend calls me up. He goes, hey, I got, he is a season ticket holder. And he goes, hey, I got these great seats for you in the Diamond Club. Diamond Club at Angel Stadium's right behind on play. Really great seats. Tanaka's on the mound and he's dealing. The Yankees are winning four to nothing. But he got into a little trouble. I want to say it was like the fourth or fifth inning. He got into a little trouble. Bases were loaded. And up comes Mike Trout. Now, early in the count, he threw one on the outside corner at the knees and Mike took it for a strike. But then he nibbled and nibbled outside the zone and Mike didn't swing. So the count got the three and one. So one swing can make it a 4-4 game, and this is why it's so important to have a plan up there. But with that 3-1 pitch, Rob, he did not have a plan. You know why I know? Because Tanaka buried a 3-1 split-finger fastball three feet in front of the plate. He had swung at that pitch before it was even 10 feet out of Tanaka's hand. He was zeroed in. I'm swinging. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. And again, guessing is not a good way to go up there. So now it goes to 3-2. and two, And now he took all doubt out of my mind. He had no plan in this. 3-2 pitch, fastball, thigh high. Mike Trout doesn't move. Strike three inning over. Wow. The most important thing above all is a good approach because we all know Mike Trout's swing is as good as it gets, but he just looks so bad. Why? Because the swing? No, because his approach was terrible. He didn't have a plan up there. Now, you might. the only time I'd work with the swing is if a guy's got a really, <laughs> really terrible swing. All right. If it's really bad and there's a major issue or major flaw, yeah, I would iron that out as I worked on the plan. But if not, if it's pretty good, maybe you just focus on zeroing in and honing this plan in. A, B, and plan take. Really, in batting practice, you're not really working on plan take. That's kind of- a game thing, but plan A and plan B. All right, hope
1: you enjoyed part one of my interview with Bo Brainer. One hitting philosophy that I really like is for your hitters to think, I'm going to swing unless it's a ball, which is an aggressive philosophy compared to the much more common philosophy that young kids have of, let me see if it's a ball or a strike. And if I see it's a strike, then I'll swing, which is more passive and more likely to cause brain freeze when kids are indecisive on those pitches that are borderline. And that hitting philosophy can still dovetail really well with Bo's hitting approach because, for example, with less than two strikes or plan A, kids can think, I'm going to swing at any pitch that's in my favorite part of the strike zone because I know those are pitches I can drive. Or with two strikes or plan B, kids can think, I'm going to swing at any pitch that's in this umpire-sized strike zone. So kids can combine the aggressive philosophy of I'm going to swing unless I'm convinced it's not a strike with Bo's three-plan approach that shifts the nuance of what you're swinging at depending on how many strikes there are. And I think that is a really good combination. Now, some of you who listen to our last guest, Doug Latta may have noticed that Doug talked about not changing their approach with two strikes. And today, Bo talked about changing the approach a little bit with two strikes. So while Doug and Bo have a difference of opinion there, one thing that they both have in common is that they both said to not have a defensive mentality with two strikes. So whichever philosophy you subscribe to with two strikes, I think it's very helpful to know that in either case, you're telling your kids to not be defensive up there with two strikes because being defensive gives the advantage to the pitcher don't be afraid get after it even with two strikes
0: all right 80 20 baseball coaches 80 20 baseball all right that wraps up the first part of that interview i did with rob and the second part I did with Rob, I will be publishing here with my thoughts next Tuesday on the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for your time. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah. Enjoy the time with the family. If you do get some time off right now, I know not everybody does, but if you do really enjoy that time with your family, hey, take care of your health, take care of your families, and take this information and go get the baseball community better. Make it better, lift it up. We'll all do our part to to make the baseball community, the youth sports community better. And until episode 58, take care. This has been the eighty twenty 20 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.